0: This week, Claire's parties square off ahead of confirmation hearing. I heart disclosure statement hearing adjourned to following week. Nine West discussions continue. More on all this and as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the week in Reorg. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Research Weekly Podcast where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distressed debt and bankruptcies. I'm Karen Lang, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City.
1: And I'm Stephen Opper. This week, distressed debt legal analyst Teresa Lee and Covenants analyst Peter Washkowitz sat down with Brian Boulet and John Eccles of Dakarba to discuss the potential wildfire liabilities facing Pacific Gas and Electric, as well as possible resolutions for the California utility provider. It's Sunday, September 16th. Parties in the Claire's store's bankruptcy appeared in court one last time, ahead of the debtor's scheduled September 17th confirmation hearing. The parties previewed their remaining scheduling and evidentiary issues, while also emphasizing that talks at a consensual resolution are ongoing. Thomas Loria of White & Case, representing second lien noteholder Oaktree, said that while the debtors have amended the plan to improve the treatment for second lien noteholders, if the second liens accept the plan, the debtors have not provided any amended disclosure. He asserted that the second liens are being asked to vote on a materially amended plan that provides, quote, 10x improvement in recovery and that there are $60 million of second lien claims that have already voted and have not received amended disclosure. Laurier continued, quote, reports of our death are greatly exaggerated. He asserted that Oak Tree submitted a bid by August 31st that includes $1.1 billion of fully committed capital. He also said that Oak Tree is actively engaged in efforts to raise the remainder of the financing, but that, quote, timeline continues to be our enemy, and that, quote, debtors are not helping us. Earlier in the week, the Claris parties filed reply briefs in support of confirmation and a memorandum on evidentiary issues. The debtors anticipate that all classes except for the second lien notes will vote to
0: accept the plan. iHeart went to court Thursday seeking approval of their disclosure statement, but no ruling was made and the hearing was continued to September 18th. Continuation of the hearing came after counsel for iHeart's Unsecure Creditors Committee, Legacy Notes Trustee Wilmington Savings Fund Society, The U.S. trustee and the SEC presented their disclosure statement objections. Judge Marvin Isker directed the debtors to add certain additional information to the disclosure statement and indicated that many of the outstanding concerns raised in the objections should be considered at confirmation. Debtors' counsel said they will revise the plan documents to address the objectors' concerns over the next several days and present the updated disclosure statement for approval next week. Judge Isker said he does not expect next Tuesday's proceedings to be, quote, very lengthy. Prior to Thursday's hearing, the debtors filed their fourth amended plan and accompanying disclosure statement with estimates of total distributable value. The debtors and the term loan and PGN group also filed replies to the DS objections, arguing that the revised plan documents disclosures were sufficient and that many of the objectors' concerns directed at the substance of the plan, should be addressed at the plan confirmation stage. The plan in its current form contemplates a separation of the iHeart and Clear Channel outdoor businesses and a substantial deleveraging of the iHeart business, with reorganized iHeart set to emerge from Chapter 11 with new debt of $5.75 billion. Senior creditors and certain allowed guarantor unsecured claims would receive in the aggregate $5.55 billion of new debt and 94% of reorganized equity. Holders of allowed iHeart Communications 2021 and Legacy Notes claims would receive in the aggregate $200 million of new debt and 5% of the reorganized equity, with existing equity getting the remaining 1%.
1: This week saw competing disclosures from the Nine West debtors and unsecured note holders regarding settlement and plan negotiations, beginning with an initial disclosure from the debtors on Sunday. The ad hoc group of unsecured note holders filed a separate set of cleansing documents on Monday, asserting that, on or before August 28th, Nine West's independent directors met with representatives of Sycamore and KKR and offered to settle all assertable causes of action against Sycamore and KKR for $470 million. On Tuesday, Nine West posted a new set of brief cleansing materials to its Interlink site, asserting that the disclosures in the unsecured note holders' documents are stale as a result of subsequent discussions according to the company prior to the filing of the noteholders cleansing materials 9 west had informed the noteholders advisors that the noteholders materials were quote inaccurate on this point and that any description of the prior proposal quote was stale in light of subsequent discussions 9 west asserts that discussions between the company's independent directors and its indirect equity owners are still ongoing
0: Puerto Rico's improving economic prospects and liquidity situation are increasing expectations that a consensual debt restructuring deal with constitutionally backed general obligation bondholders can be worked out, but no resolution is imminent, according to six sources familiar with the matter. Two of the sources said they expect talks between creditor groups, a new constitutional debt group, as well as the established ad hoc group of go bondholders, and the Promesa Oversight Board to resume in earnest after the certification of a revised commonwealth fiscal plan with the board setting a certification target for september 21st on monday evening revised fiscal plans for the commonwealth CAFINA, and the university of puerto rico were posted on afaf's website the commonwealth and CAFINA plans revised in response to the promesa oversight board's violation letters incorporate the terms of the COFINA debt restructuring deal, reflected in the plan support agreement and term sheet announced by the Commonwealth Government and Oversight Board on August 30th. In addition, AFAF and the Government Development Bank announced that they have received the requisite votes for creditor approval of the qualifying modification for GDB under Title VI, pursuant to a restructuring support agreement with certain of GDB's creditors. On Thursday, Judge Laura Taylor Swain presided over an omnibus hearing at which she reserved decision on the motion by the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors in the Title III cases to enforce the automatic stay against certain actions taken by the GDB in its proposed Title VI restructuring.
1: Other top red stories of the week were 1. EFH, Third Circuit affirms reconsideration of $275 million Nextera termination fee decision.
0: Two, Sanchez Energy engages McKinsey for operational review while Maverick bids Miss Company's internal target.
1: Three, Repsol defendants urge bankruptcy court to abstain from hearing Max's
2: liquidating trust claims against them.
0: And now we turn it over to Jim Holloway in Houston for a preview of what's to come in the week ahead.
2: Well, thank you, Karen, and greetings, everyone. Busy week ahead, especially on the court side with four important hearings. Starting on Monday, September 17th, confirmation hearing in Claire's stores and a DS hearing in Rex Energy. And if you're interested in reliving your memories of 10 years ago, there's a State of the Estate presentation and hearing related to Lehman Brothers. Personally, I'll always recall landing in London reading on my palm handheld. Y'all remember those? The JP Morgan had just bought Bear Stearns for $2 a share. And there's also the expiration of Northern Oil and Gas's solicitation to allow it to enter into a new credit facility. The company also said last Wednesday that production in the first two months of the quarter, they're focused in the Williston Basin in North Dakota, has been above expectations. Tuesday, September 18th, there's a disclosure statement and a DIP hearing for Pacific Drilling and a continued DS hearing for iHeart. And just for a change of pace, we have earnings and a conference call for Neiman Marcus. Wednesday, September 19th, nothing really on the calendar today. Thursday, September twentieth, Reorg's third quarter webinar on Puerto Rico, featuring our incredible coverage team. If you're in Houston, I will be speaking on a panel with the law firm of Haynes and Boone on secrets, leaks, disclosures in the press. Those are leaks and disclosures pertaining to the world of stress debt in the oil field rather than, say, I don't know, law enforcement or national security type matters. And on Friday, September 21st, a retail power assets hearing in First Energy, the initial case conference in the Southern District of New York in PetSmart. This is related to those chewy equity transactions and the expiration of PHI's cash tender for its 2019 notes. And that's all from me. Back to y'all in New York.
0: Thanks, Jim. As always, we'll be on the lookout for all of that and more.
1: This week, Ryan Boulay and John Eccles of Dakarba join us to discuss their views on the liabilities that could be facing California utility provider Pacific Gas and Electric. Handing it to you, Teresa.
3: My name is Teresa Lee, and I'm here with my colleague, Peter Washkowitz, who is a Covenants Analyst at REARG Research. Today, we have two guests with us to discuss the issues and wildfire liabilities currently facing Pacific Gas and Electric, or PG&E, which is the largest electricity and natural gas provider in Northern and Central California. Our guests today are Ryan Boulay, a partner at Dakarba, and John Eccles, a partner in Opportune's Energy Consulting Practice. So, Ryan has significant experience across numerous industries, including oil and gas, power, oil field services, and automotive, advising companies and their stakeholders through defense of corporate valuations, the structuring of creative financing, and reorganization solutions. Before joining Dakarba, Ryan worked at Shannon Capital Partners, Panagos Cats Situation Investing, and JP Morgan. John has over 30 years of business experience, including six years as a senior executive in the energy industry. John also provides extensive support for energy-related bankruptcies and restructuring, providing both creditor and debtor side support, including litigation support, claims administration, and testimony for debtor and possession financing. Before joining Opportune, John was a partner in Arthur Anderson's Audit Practice, serving energy clients in Anderson's Houston and New Orleans offices. John also spent time at Enron, serving as managing director in both commercial and commercial support roles in Enron's wholesale energy business. So what we're going to start with today is a little bit about the background of PG&E. It is a largest utility in California, and it is facing a large number of wildfire liabilities at the moment. Can you you tell us a little bit about this company and uh, what issues are facing it?
4: Sure. Thanks, Teresa. Um, yeah, so to, to set the table just a little bit in terms of um, PG&E, some of the issues it's facing, um, and, you know, kind of what that means going forward, uh, let me give you just a little bit of a background here in terms of uh, what we're talking about. Um, so PG&E, is the, it is the largest electricity and natural gas provider in northern and central California. Um, and the reason why PG&E is topical right now is because it's up against... Uh, a pretty large number in terms of uh, potential wildfire liabilities. Um, you know, right now, by by some estimates, uh, you know, we think that uh, that the company could be facing up to seventeen billion dollars in liabilities deriving from wildfires um, that have been caused or exacerbated by PG and E's equipment uh, in in Northern California. Um, and the reason this is important is because these these liabilities for the wildfires uh, derive from a special provision in the California Constitution. That's called inverse, condoms, uh, sorry, inverse condemnation, um, which effectively assigns strict liability for wild damages, wildfire damages to utilities like PG&E. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll spend some more time talking about that, but in a nutshell, that's, that's why we're talking about this. Um, the company has hired restructuring counsel. Um, it was the story was broken, you know. Sort of midway through the summer, that uh, that, that while has been retained by PG and E to uh, potentially evaluate debt restructuring options uh, that uh, that may be necessary in connection with how the company is going to address this uh, potentially tremendous set of liabilities associated with uh, with with the wildfires. Um, so you know. One thing that's really important here is that uh, the company is is facing you know uh, liability for you know some un unaccounted for as yet number of wildfire liabilities. But these are all uh, in addition to a pretty large capital structure that exists at PG&E in the first place. Um, it's there's a there's a holdco and opco structure there. Um, there's. About 400 million dollars of debt sitting up at the holdco, um, and then the remainder of the debt sits kind of down at uh, at the opco, which is where all the action is. And um, in, in, at the opco, you're looking at uh, about 19 billion dollars worth of debt. So taken together with the uh, with the holdco, you're at close to $19.5 dollars. Um, and there there are other significant liabilities um, in addition to just the debt that uh, that that burden the capital structure um, as we. Sit here today. The company's got about three billion dollars of liquidity, um, but you know certainly not enough to address uh, a potential wildfire liability um, claim in excess of kind of you know I don't know ten to seventeen billion dollars as as we sit here today. Um, so. Why would PG and E, you know, be talking about a restructuring, and why is it important for the distressed community? Um, you know, I think right now, given the potential size of the liability um, and PG and E's sort of lack of organic ability to address that, uh, we've got to think about how the company moves forward through these liabilities and finds a finds a resolution. There are some things on the table um, out in California that would purport to address uh, these 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 liabilities and, and give the company a solution, Um, but as yet, I think there are probably more questions than answers uh, with respect to exactly how that gets resolved. All that being said, the company's got a large capital structure, um, and it's it's subject to the usual sort of various terms and restrictions, um, and all of these would need to be addressed, you know, waived, amended, complied with, somehow modified uh, to the extent that um, the, the company needs to assume new liabilities, either in the public market or someplace else, uh, to, to pay off the wildfire liabilities. Um, and so uh, I'm sure the company is, is thinking through this. Um, the other thing is that uh, the hiring of counsel might also be strategic, um, you know, intended to be kind of a signal uh, that the, the company is ready to uh, exercise its, uh, its, its, its its rights and, and and abilities under the bankruptcy code um, to protect itself to the extent that uh, supportive legislative action um, isn't taken or a, a consensual or reasonable solution can't be found um, in terms of, of how we address the wildfire liabilities. So, you know the bottom line is there's a there's a lot of uncertainty right now with respect to how the, the liabilities, uh, the wildfire liabilities are going to be addressed. Um, what's encouraging is that uh, the California legislature again, has some proposed uh, legislation that would uh, that would that would purport to to find a solution at least in part for this, but there are a lot of implications, risks, and considerations uh, that we want to talk you through as we as we think about what that really means
3: thanks for that overview ryan um so obviously as a utility pg&e is very heavily regulated can you guys talk a little bit about inverse condemnation that's this first big piece and this is kind of why pg&e is facing such a huge potential wildfire liability
5: so uh as far as we know inverse condemnation is really a statute that exists uh only in california and alabama but basically is it's a strict liability uh clause which basically says if the a uh, company's equipment or assets causes a fire, then they're responsible for all damage downstream that it causes. Uh, so there's a number of cases out there, uh, whether or not the company's in the best position to settle those liabilities, whether or not it was in compliance and could prevent. Uh, the, the, the law itself sort of looks past that and says that uh, it concentrates the liability on the entity that caused the fire.
3: And what do you think the rationale for that is?
5: You know, there's some case law out there that, that we've seen, uh, Borrowman, Southern Cal, uh, the basic is to spread uh, the cost uh, among the benefiting community, any burden disproportionately borne by a member of that community. So it, it's, it's somewhat uh, similar to a uh, uh, con, con, you know, eminent domain taking, where you have to pay someone for the use of their property. It's that extension of that concept. Yeah,
4: and I think that to, to even you know simplify it a little bit more, um, you know, there's there's the uh, there, there's the thinking here that the is in the best, although admittedly not a perfect position. To control its compliance with the safety protocols, um, and that that uh, from from which sort of these these in inverse condemnation claims arise, uh, and to prevent wildfires in the first place, uh, as well as the fact that it's got more money than any any one of the victims, um, and so as a result, it's the party that's kind of deemed most appropriate to shoulder the burden. Uh, uh, of the damages re- resulting from the fires, and it's it's really kind of an equitable remedy to, uh, a, you know, a, a complex and, and difficult problem. Um, so I think said another way, were you to phase out inverse condemnation, uh, the cost of the liabilities might effectively be borne by homeowners and their insurance companies instead of the uh, utility, um, and it you know potentially would concentrate the liability caused by the entity serving a broad group of people into the hands of a more narrow subset.
3: So that is very interesting because uh, we are going to see you know we're going to discuss later on that there are issues of whether PG&E can pass liability onto their rate base um, by increasing their rates, and they are very heavily regulated. So we'll talk about that a little later. But uh, first I want to ask um, whether pg e can address these wildfire liabilities and what are the sort of mechanisms that it can use there?
5: Well, uh, so, so clearly, I mean, in theory, one uh, one path would be to cover the cost through recovery through rate base. Uh, it, under the current construct, that wouldn't appear to be an option to them, uh, so they would be left with traditional corporate approaches: uh, cash on hand, issuance in new debt, issuance in new equity. Uh, you know, obviously taking into into account insurance recoveries. Um, but ultimately, uh, depending on the amount of the liability and uh, whether or not there's adequate corporate resources, the question you know will become who's going to bear ultimately bear the burden. So. Um, uh, ultimately, I also would say that PG&E would take the stance that, by and large, they followed the safety rules and regulations, uh, so that even though the fires may have been caused by their equipment they weren't necessarily at fault as as we would normally think about it
3: and do we think that there is a path to bankruptcy here the company has filed for pa- bankruptcy before in the past
4: yeah I think it's so as we sit here today I mean that's 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 a lot of what the discussion um, with respect to pg and e is uh, there's a, there's a lot of considerations I mean bankruptcy is obviously an expensive process and absent some sort of a, a pre-negotiated or, or pre-arranged type of plan where pg and e to go into a free fall I mean, this is a case that could very easily cost, you know, many hundreds of millions of dollars. You just look at what happened in EFH or you look at the fees uh, in, in, in Toys R Us. or um, So, I mean, look, I think the simple answer is that uh, an out-of-court solution is, in most cases, preferable, particularly given how expensive a bankruptcy would be here, Um but there are a number of things we got to think about. I mean, the, the simple answer is that you know PG&E can certainly try to kind of solve this problem on their own. Uh, you know, but I think that they're going to be. Unsuccessful, and and part of this is why SB nine hundred one or the legislation that's going to that that seeks to address how PG and E can 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 recover through its rate base, um, you know the the amount of money necessary to settle the the liabilities is 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 worth talking about. But before we get there, I mean, you know, to to think about things that absent an SB nine hundred one. Things that, that, that PG&E could do, um, you know, look, they could contest the assignment of fault uh, or any findings of liabilities, which I'm, I'm sure they're going to do, um, and that in and of itself can, can seek to sort of uh, limit the size of the liability, but with inverse condemnation facing them, I think that's a, that's a tough road to hoe. Um, you know, look, you can always push back against the inverse condemnation statutes and mount a legal argument against them, but, you know, I think that's going to be tough, and, uh, and it's not going to change the fact that the liabilities exist uh, exist to date. I mean, you know, and, and, and going through and trying to invalidate, overturn, or somehow get rid of uh, inverse condemnation is going to be a giant, you know, legislative, judicial, and political undertaking that's just not going to happen uh, overnight, or if, if at all. Um Now, the company could consider having sort of reserves for this kind of event, sort of like a a nuclear decommissioning trust. Um, But again, I mean, that that, that requires sort of consistent and regular accruing of and stacking away of cash. And it's not something the company's done. So a lot of these things are all sort of prospective um, and kind of on their face. I, you know, probably assign a pretty low probability to any of them actually being successful. Um, John mentioned insurance. Uh, and, and I think that's that's, that's worth noting. Um, the PG and E can look to uh, its insurance coverage for recovery around some amount of the liabilities, but uh, the amount's really small, at least relative to the size of the liabilities we're facing. Um, yeah, at kind of just around 840 million dollars. So you know, while well, that's certainly helpful, and 840 million dollars is 840 million dollars uh, relative to the size of the liability we're looking at, um, you know, that that just doesn't solve the problem. Um, so ultimately, could it file for bankruptcy? Sure, uh, to the extent that we can't find a resolution, or um, you know, the uh, the path forward under SB nine hundred one is ultimately deemed incomplete and leaves the company stranded with uh, some meaningful amount of liabilities that it uh, that it just can't service on its own. Then, yeah, bankruptcy filing could be, um, you know, could be the path forward. Um, you know, at at the end of the day, I think that the benefit of filing for bankruptcy is that it, it provides kind of a disciplined, highly public forum with a lot of visibility and oversight, um, and it affords PG&E kind of all the standard protections of a debtor while attempting to resolve these uh, potentially significant liabilities that you know, especially with respect to um, you know the the wildfire liabilities here that derive from inverse condemnation are um, you know a unique beast kind of all to themselves.
3: So you talked about. Uh, Ryan, you talked about SB901 quite a bit. Can we discuss a little bit about what the mechanics of that are and what it would potentially do for pg and
5: Absolutely. So w- this this is really with respect to the 2017 wildfire liabilities only. Uh, the company has, uh, near as we can tell, probably accrued about $2.5 billion for those, um, obviously the amount uh and who all that's owed to will take time to ripen but 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 given that pgd's ability under the status quo to to address all the liabilities the uh, legislature has uh, passed a uh, proposed form of a solution it's uh senate bill 901 so it is we understand it has passed the legislature uh, and sits on the uh, desk of governor jerry brown uh, indications are that he will sign it, but as we sit here today, he hasn't. So the basic premise of uh, SB 901 would be that uh, PG&E could issue bonds to reco- recover certain of the costs in their rate base. Um, someone put together an estimate uh, that it would turn out to be about five million or $5 a year for a customer for every billion of bonds, um, but but that ability to issue those bonds and, and, and weave the uh, payback of the principal and interest on those bonds into the rate base is subject to some important uh, exclusions and caveats. Uh, for one, uh, the bill itself states that it only covers uh, liabilities resulting from fires originating in 2017. Um, there's a, a, a agency-level step meaning that the CPUC, or California Public Utility Commission, would have to approve uh, any rate increases that would fund those bonds. Uh, the law also only allows those bonds to be issued and, and recovered through rates if uh, the CPUC determines that PG&E uh, followed the safety laws. Uh, I- I'll call that a did not break the rules situation. Uh, we. You can see this for yourself on the company's website, but uh, fire investigators have found uh, a number of cases where they believe that the company did break rules. Uh, There's no dollar attached to that, but obviously there's some point in the future where dollars have to be attached. So what the bill says is, to the extent that PG&E didn't follow the rules, it can't recover those in rates, in simple terms. Uh, So it leaves a question... Uh, open as to how pg and might actually service some potential significant liability in cases where they were deemed to have not followed the safety rules. Um, having said that, there is a, I, I call it a backstop, if you will. Uh, the uh, SB 901 uh, empowers the CPUC in California to conduct a bankruptcy test. Uh, and basically what it says uh, that they can review the financial status of the company and determine that the amount uh, that can be paid out of the, the shareholders uh, can be paid without harming the ratepayers or the ability to provide adequate and safe service. And that the cost that the company has to bear can't exceed the amounts that would compromise these commitments. So it, it would appear to effectively cap that exposure. Uh, the question is, you know, what is the ultimate liability, and what would the stress tests or bankruptcy tests actually determine uh, such a limit would be.
3: Those are all uh, important issues for the company to consider going forward. What are the opening questions that we still have about the situations that we need to continue looking at going forward?
4: Yeah, and so I think that that, that SB 901 is is interesting in that it's, it's a it's it's a it's a good step um, and, it, and it and it shows some progress and some attempts to, to deal with this situation, um, but it's 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 incomplete in in a, in a couple of in a in a couple of regards. Um, you know, I think the that the first one is that again, it's all subject to um, oversight by uh, by by the CPUC, and you know that's a that, that is a a it's a, it's a public. Um, it's, it's a public uh, sort of organization um, and, but it but it's determinations and, and findings are, are certainly going to be subjective um, you know the, the the total size of the liabilities as we sit here today again are are, are undetermined they, they they'll take time to ripen and the company continues to accrue for them on their balance sheet uh, on a rolling basis but um, the investigations aren't complete um, and so it's it's going to take time for us to sort of have a, a, a final view on what the quantum of the of the liabilities are um, and you know the other thing here again is that we're only talking about 2017 there's 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 no answer for 2018 quite yet yet. Um, you know, even when we're talking about the sort of situation where the company didn't break the safety rules and uh, they're allowed to sort of securitize or pass along um, the, the, the liability via the via uh, increases in the rate base to, to pay back uh, bonds that they, they, they might issue to satisfy these liabilities. I mean, there there are sort of basic market questions that, that need to get answered. I mean, the market's got to buy these bonds. Um, you know, there are going to be questions about what the, the credit quality of the bonds, you know really are um you know the pg and e was was downgraded over the course of the past month uh one notch from from a3 to baa1 by by moody's um if if the the level of liabilities kind of remains uncapped and what we're seeing um a of sb uh, 901 becomes a, a blueprint for the future um and debt continues to stack up on the company there are real sort of serious concerns about the company's credit quality um and you know credit quality obviously um is a uh, is 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 a huge factor um, in determining the company's ability to actually sell these these bonds to the market. Um, are the bonds so? You know, will the bonds be backed or have some form of of, of, of credit enhancement? Uh, you know, we just don't know. Um, and, and again, you know, does does nine hundred one set the table for kind of unlimited securitization and, and, and rate hikes? Uh, we just don't know the answer to these things. Um, in the cases where the company sort of did break the safety rules and can't recover the cost through uh, increases that are passed along to their rate bases, well then. Where's that money come from? And to the extent that the uh, sort of division of liabilities between uh, did break and did not break um, kind of is uh, disproportionately weighted towards the uh, did break uh, category, you know the company is going to have to think long and hard about sort of you know what, uh, what 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 alternative ways they can they can satisfy or resolve these liabilities um, are are, are going to be, uh, and so. You know, and again, all of this, uh, even in the case of you know, the, the did not break the rules uh, situation where the company can pass the liabilities on to, uh, onto their ratepayers, it's going to be subject to that, that stress test that we talked about. Um, and to the extent it's determined that the company simply can't support this new debt, uh, the company's going to have to think about uh, what alternative paths forward uh, are going to be.
6: Thanks, Richard. I'll, I'll take over. Um, I actually just have a quick question. So, with all these stress tests and the, you know the finding of strict liability, how much input does PG&E have in the process? You know, when they're trying to set, you know, what's the maximum amount that that ratepayers can pay? Um, was it PG&E's equipment that that caused that caused the the fire? Does PG&E have any input, kind of, to say, well, it, it 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 wasn't us, and here's why, or is it just kind of uh, the CPUC that's that's deciding these things um, and, and whatever they say goes
5: well so, so so maybe a step step at a time there as I understand it there's an organization called Cal Fire who is the investigative body for the state that is you know doing the forensics around what actually happened in you know in each fire there's there's fires of you know 800 acres to 30,000 acres and so forth um, obviously those findings could be uh, a you know you know attacked by the company if they disagree with them, and I, I think they would or should um, uh, But ultimately, you know when you get to Sorting between the damages that were caused by did not break the rules or did break the rules uh, And then how much of that did break can take be taken out of um, the shareholders hide versus you know, that's ultimately up to the C- CPUC so the Public Utility Commission is a public body. It's a uh, creature of the legislature, uh, and but you know they they are public. They will have hearings uh, as they do on all rate cases or other matters, and people will be able to have their say, including the company. Um, it, it, it's not a closed door process. All
6: right, thanks. It's, I, I think this is this is very interesting. So. So the company, they have, they're under strict liability rules, they kind of have to follow rules to set rates. So obviously debt could be another, you know, kind of source of liquidity to, to help them fund these liabilities. Um, before we get into the actual capital structure, are, is, is the company, subject to any regulatory rules with respect to how much debt they're permitted to incur?
4: Yeah, so the company, they, they are, um, you know, primarily with respect to the CPUC. Um, so the CPUC um, has, has, a, has a current set of regu- regulations that call for um, the, the operating company, which is where the CPUC steps in and, and regulates, um, to maintain a sort of 51% minimum equity ratio. Uh, based on the company's current capital structure, that gives them about a $700 million cushion um, in terms of an ability to go out and, uh, and, and issue new debt. All of this is separate and apart from sort of what the documents themselves say uh, with respect to debt capacity, but the CPUC itself um, does have that provision and sort of absent any sort of a, of a waiver uh, modification or, or some other agreement than the operating company, which is, again, where most of the debt sits, um, is restricted, uh, by the CPUC, um, to, you know, issuing only another $700 million or so worth of debt. Um, the CPUC, uh, purportedly does not regulate, uh, the holding company, um, where about 400 million dollars worth of debt sits, and so as as, as we as we kind of read the documents and we we we, we look at the situation, uh, there does exist the potential for debt to be issued um, up at the parent company. Um, but again, that would be subject to sort of broader restrictions and limitations that are that are put on um, by the sort of by the documents and the intercreditor dynamics that the company's got. So
6: they're also restricted from incurring debt. It just it seems that their liquidity is kind of completely tied up in in regulation. But um I guess that's, that's just
4: it's the case. It is, yeah. And they, 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 do have. I mean, they do have some liquidity right now. But their ability to, um, but it, it, but it, as we look at it, I mean, and it's not entirely clear to us. But it is, as we look at it, I mean, um, the three billion dollars worth of uh, worth of liquidity, or call it probably two and a half billion dollars worth of dry powder, um, you know, under their under their revolving credit facilities, uh, only seven hundred million of that down at the uh, the operating company could could be exercised. To maintain compliance with the CPUC,
6: and and you know, I guess we should probably take a step back. Could you um, maybe walk us through their cap- their capital
4: structure? Yeah. Um, so the the capital structure is. Um is is kind of as follows. There's there's four hundred million dollars worth of worth of debt um, up at the uh, up at the up at the parent company, which is split between um, two sort of uh, senior unsecured uh, credit facilities. There's a there's a revolver and and there's a term loan, um, and then you know down at the at the the operating company, you've got nineteen point one billion dollars worth of, call it, uh, debt proper uh, notes and that sort of thing. Um, there's there's another sort of $12 billion in, in liabilities reva- relating to, you know, what's been accrued for the wildfires uh, and environmental remediation uh, so far, as well as, you know, kind of another uh, $7 billion or so in liabilities that relate to asset retirement obligations, capital leases, pensions, and, and other things that, you know, may not qualify as, as again, debt proper, but are, Nonetheless, important liabilities that would need to be sort of addressed and flushed out in a in a, in a restructuring. Um, I think the other thing that's 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 worth noting here is that uh, the entirety of the of the capital structure is unsecured um and so the, the the big dynamic here with respect to, to, to recoveries at least is that you've got a hold Co and an opco structure uh, where the the hold Co the 400 million dollars of, of debt up at the hold Co is structurally subordinated to all of the debt that sits down um, at, at the opco uh, with, with all the assets kind of sitting down at the opco level um, so as you're thinking about kind of waterfalls and recoveries and you know the potential for issuing new debt up at the hold Co um, to get around some of this CPUC regulations, you've got to keep in mind um, that they're probably going to get the second bite at the apple, um, you know, in in a a value allocation uh, type of exercise. What debt capacity
6: is provided for uh, under the Opco and the Holco debt documents?
4: Yeah, so, um, you know, putting the the CPUC regulations aside for a second and just kind of talking about the documents, um, you know, as as, as we read them, it seems like there are relatively limited restrictions on the company incurring um, unsecured debt. Uh, that being said, uh, from a broader perspective, the company um, can incur secured debt equal to 10% of net tangible assets. And so if you do the calculation with respect to, to what net tangible assets are right now, that equates to, call it about $6 billion or so um, of, of, of additional debt. Um you know, to the extent that um, any secured debt in excess of the 10% net tangible assets is issued, um, it would it would trigger trigger kind of a an equal and ratable clause. Um, you know, that would effectively, as far as we can tell, make all the outstanding debt secured.
6: So, I mean, it seems like they have a lot of debt capacity. But as you were saying, the the CPUC's capital structure rules supersede the the debt document. So, I guess right now they're limited to $700 million. Um, At the OpCo, which at, is, yeah. At the OpCo. So could, so if the HoldCo, um, let's say they incur debt, now, opco not guarantee that debt, or, or would that go? Would that violate the rules of the capital?
4: It, it, yeah, we think. I mean, they could guarantee it. I mean, but they could probably only guarantee it up to seven hundred million dollars because you know we think that would probably count against um, the, the the calculation of total debt, and and in this case, the CPUC calculation steps in and probably supersedes um, the overall sort of debt capacity that exists under the documents. Um, you know, I think it's important to to, to point out here um, that you know this is a this is a theoretical exercise um, under the debt documents um, and. That's kind of one leg of the stool. The other thing that's that's really worth thinking about here is the company's kind of practical capacity um, to, to, to take on more debt and to support it from a financial and, and, and operational perspective, which you know calls for a more detailed analysis, kind of looking at the company relative to its comps, looking at its cash flows, um, and, and kind of understanding, you know, what true ability the company does have to service or incur more debt, um, irrespective of what the documents might say.
6: Okay, so if the company wanted to seek a waiver from the CPUC to um to get around this, the fifty one percent rule. Um, how likely is it that that they could get a waiver? I have company. I, I'm, I'm assuming companies must have probably sought waivers in the past.
4: Yeah, I mean, I got to think that in this case, it's 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 probably pretty likely. I mean, the fifty one percent rule um, seems to be a, a construct that exists, um, sort of in a pre SB nine hundred one rule and world rather. Um, and, and given the role that the the CPUC has um, in 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 respect of SB nine oh one, uh, if in fact it's going to sign off on on, on PG and E's ability to go ahead and, and sort of securitize these wildfire liabilities, uh, they're they're going to have to give them some additional headroom under that under that seven hundred million. I just you know I don't, I don't see how there's there's any way around that.
6: Yeah, I, that that all makes sense. I think um, you know so I think from a debt perspective, uh, it's probably accurate to say that documents you know it allows a significant amount of additional debt, but at this point. The company is capped by the regulations um, and subject to a waiver. Uh, they probably can't incur more than seven hundred million of debt. Yeah,
4: I think that I think that's right. And then again, you know, I don't want to lose sight of the practical considerations associated with incurring more debt. And it's you know, it's it's not only um, just just sort of traditional debt structuring considerations. You know, how much debt can the company sustain? You know, what do its leverage multiples look like? You know, what do its cash flows look like relative to its ability to to service this debt? Um, but this is also actually addressed in SB nine hundred one itself. Um, with respect to that provision around the bankruptcy stress test. I mean, I think you can you can you can pretty easily uh, construe that portion of the uh, of of the bill to to say, look, you know, these guys can't take on they can't bite off more than they can chew um, to to put it simply.
6: Okay. I well I mean, I think that was a that was a kind of great overview of of the debt capacity. I guess uh, it- the most important thing, obviously, is, is is what comes next. And I know the, the company filed for Chapter 11 in, in 2001. We've seen that they're subject to the inverse condemnation. They can't raise their rates without permission. They can't incur more debt without permission. Um, It seems it's kind of very lopsided in terms of, you know, who has the power here. It just seems that the the utility companies are providing, you know, a service. I mean, they're providing electricity. I I mean, do they have any leverage to push back against these regulations? This
5: company can't go anywhere. They are the utility for Central and Northern California. Uh, I think SB 901, in in my view, personal view, is that uh, the legislature understood that uh, a well-financed, well-capitalized Reasonable cost of capital. Utility, it was necessary to to go forward. Um, what you know, what's just not clear is how much liability is there for the wildfire, and how much of that will ultimately be taken out of uh, the shareholders' hide versus the. Uh, be able to be pushed back to the right place. Yeah,
4: and I think SB901 in and of itself actually is, is is. I mean, it's, I don't know if it's leverage, but I think that it's it's recognition or acknowledgement of the reality that exists in Northern California. You know, i.e. PG&E, to John's point, isn't going anywhere um, and, and the issue needs to be addressed. And so, you know, SB901 purports to, it, it's an incomplete solution, but it, at least it's a start. And it purports to try to, Find a way to deal with this, um, and, and that's a, that's a good thing for that's a good thing for for, for PG and E because uh, at the end of the day, um, it, it gives them the the ability to go ahead and try to try to securitize these liabilities and, and address them without taking them directly out of the equity. Um, in you know, all that being said, it's a, it's it's a good construct and it's a start, but there's still just a, a lot of open issues here. Um, you know, starting with we just don't know how big the liabilities are, um, and we're again talking just about 2017. Uh, then you need to, to, to get into you know how do you allocate the liabilities between the break did not break the rules. Um, Type of considerations um, and kind of with respect to both of those, evaluate the company's overall financial wherewithal uh, and ability to to service whatever the, the the pro forma new capital structure is going to look at. Uh, sorry, look like um, as we as we think about dealing with these liabilities. Um, and then of course you got you know issues around you know, you know credit quality and who buys the bonds and you know is have we have we set a precedent uh, via SB nine hundred one that allows for the company to. Even though it's backed by the by the by the rate base, to just um, you know continue to address these potential wildfire liabilities by uh, by stacking on more and more and more debt. Um, So. Uh, again, there are probably more questions than answers right now, but um, I think everybody should be encouraged by the fact that uh, the folks out in California recognize the severity of this issue, um, and, and that uh, you know some 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 action is being taken, uh, even if it is uh, you know th- as we sit here today still sort of incomplete and subject to uh, lots of open questions.
3: Great. Thank you so much, Ryan and John, for joining us today. Um, this has been you know, very fascinating. and There's clearly a lot of very complex and moving situations going on here with PG&E and in the legislature. And uh, this is definitely a situation that we at REORG and I know that you and others in the investment community will continue to keep an eye on. So thank you also to Peter for joining me today. And thank you to our listeners. Make sure to tune in next time.
1: Thank you, Teresa. As a reminder, the views and opinions of guests expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers. Do not necessarily reflect the official view of Reorg Research. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all Reorg Research podcasts on our media page, or if you're not a subscriber, you can access them on iTunes or SoundCloud. I'm Stephen Opper, and this has been The Week in Reorg.